you have your Bible, you can open up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 is, is where we're headed this morning as we continue looking through some, some parts of, of the gospel of Mark together. Uh, we'll be picking up in verse 40 in, in just a little bit. I, I love that psalm that we've just read together. Uh, it is this wonderful picture and story of how God is constantly pursuing us. Uh, God is constantly uh, near us. Uh, and, and this is such a wonderful and true picture of who God is. Over Christmas time, I decided to read this little book that's called On the Incarnation. Uh, it was written in the fourth century by Athanasius of Alexandria. And it is about why Jesus, the Word of God, became flesh to be born among us. I mean, it is about the wonder and the mystery of what we call the incarnation. And it really is a perfect little Christmas book. I mean, I highly recommend it. Athanasius should absolutely be up on the shelf next to Dickens' Christmas Carol. It's perfect. Um, But Athanasius begins his treatise on the incarnation by describing the corruption of humanity. He says, with death holding greater sway and corruption remaining fast against human beings, the race of humans was perishing. And so he goes on to write, for this purpose then, the incorporeal and incorruptible and immaterial word of God comes into our realm. Now he comes toward us in his love for us. You see, because of our corrupted flesh, the incorruptible word of God took on flesh. Because we were dying, he came and died for us. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Athanasius writes that he did this so that As human beings had turned toward corruption, he might turn them again to incorruptibility and give them life from death by making the body his own and by the grace of the resurrection, banishing death from among them as straw from the fire. I just love that right? What an amazing Christmas book, right? I loved getting to read this um, over Christmas. Now, we could spend a lot of time unpacking all that Athanasius wrote about and said. We could define all of his many different terms like incorporeal and incarnation and corruption and all of this, but there's something really simple and really profound in what he says about the nature of God. How do we respond to corruption, right? How do we usually respond to corruption? Or perhaps to put it another way, use another word that that may be very relevant to us today, how do we respond to infection, right? We back away. We, We put some space between us and the infection, we withdraw. I mean, that's why we're around here wearing masks and social distancing and why we have hand sanitizer all around. That's why if you get infected, 
or come into contact with someone who has been infected, you have to go into quarantine for some amount of time, right? This is how we respond to corruption. This is how we respond to infection. We respond to infection by backing away from it. But how does God respond to corruption? How does God respond to infection? What does he do? Well, he moves toward rather than away, right? Instead of backing away, he moves toward us. He became human to dwell among us, right? Athanasius wrote, for this purpose, the word of God comes into our realm. This is who God is. This is the nature of God. This is the heart of God to move toward those things that are corrupted and broken, to make them right. Athanasius brilliantly described all of this in the philosophical language of his day. And Mark, as we read today, is going to show us this in action with a simple but profound story of Jesus. So let's read together Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 40. Uh, you can skip to the next, next one there. We'll yeah, start in verse 40 together. A leper came to him, begging him, and kneeling, he said to him, If you choose, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I do choose. Be made clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. After sternly warning him, he sent him away at once, saying to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the word so that Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but stayed out in the country. And people everywhere came to him from every quarter. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the invitation of this story, that you are a God who reaches out toward us, who moves toward us. God, I pray that as we reflect on the words of your scripture today, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, now, this story of Jesus reaching out toward this leper is powerful in and of itself. But to really understand all that's going on here, uh, we need to bring in the book of Leviticus. All right? Now, for any of you who've started one of those Bible in a Year reading plans, this is the book that you're going to get to next month, and it's the one that's going to make you stop your Bible in a Year reading plan. 
Okay, but has any of you, have any of you tried this before? You know, you're making your way through the Bible. You've got all those classic stories from Genesis and then the, the epic tale of the Exodus. And then you get to Leviticus. And there's all these laws, all these kind of arcane rituals and, and practices. And you're just like, all right, I'm out. I, I don't know what this is all about, right? Right, this is the book of Leviticus. Um, but... As odd as Leviticus may seem, it is actually a really great companion book to the book of Mark. Um, they actually talk to one another quite a bit. You see, the first 10 chapters of Leviticus give all of these instructions about all these different kinds of sacrifices. And these sacrifices are specifically intended to restore relationship with God and with people. There's all these different kinds of sacrifices uh, that, that are to restore God and people to one another. And so this is what the first 10 chapters or so of, of Leviticus is all about. And then about midway through the book of Leviticus, there's this special ceremony described on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And uh, the high priest will go behind the veil on this day to offer a special sacrifice in the holy place, the holiest place. And so all of these sacrifices exist. Uh, they go behind the veil and they restore relationship with God and with people. Now, if you were here last week, as we began reading the beginning of the book of Mark, what is the very first thing that Jesus does? What did we talk about last week? Well, at his baptism, the veil of heaven was torn open, right? And, and, and Jesus comes to restore relationship with God. And then he goes out and begins calling people into community. Jesus comes to restore relationship with God and with community. Just like the first 10 chapters of Leviticus. This is what Jesus comes to do. And then after all of these different stories of, of sacrifices and things in the first 10 chapters, the next five chapters of Leviticus are all about these various purity codes. All these things that are considered clean, and unclean, right? There's different kinds of foods, different kinds of animals, different physical states that are considered clean or unclean, you know, and they would make a person unclean if they encountered them. And there's two full chapters devoted to various kinds of leprous diseases in the book of Leviticus. And leprosy, as it's talked about in, in Leviticus, can refer to what today we call Hansen's disease, but it's much broader than that. It's much broader than that. It referred to any kind of abnormal skin condition like boils or blisters or, or blemishes. And in fact, it's even more broad than that. It can refer to any kind of abnormal surface condition. There's a whole section on leprous clothing or, or leprous houses, right? Think about the growth of mold or, or mildew, right? That, that kind of falls under this same category. And all of these conditions were considered unclean. All of these different things were considered unclean. Now, here are the instructions 
and Leviticus for a person with a leprous disease. All right, Leviticus 13, verse 45. The person who has the leprous disease shall wear torn clothes. They shall let the hair of his head be disheveled, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has this disease. He shall live alone, and his dwelling shall be outside the camp of the people. Right, these are the instructions that he is given. Now, this is one intense kind of quarantine, isn't it? Right, because not only did this person have to live outside, alone, you know, outside the camp, stay away from people, but man, they, they would also have to show their uncleanness with the kinds of clothes that they wore, the way that they kept their hair, and they even had to announce their uncleanness by shouting out, unclean, unclean, anytime they went somewhere. They would announce it to, to let everyone know, hey, keep away, I'm unclean. And the purpose of all of this is to protect the community from a potentially deadly contagion, right? But it's difficult. It'd be difficult to live that kind of life, to live that kind of quarantine. I mean, one Bible commentator wrote that a leper was not only robbed of their health because of the disease, but also robbed of their name, occupation, habits, family, and fellowship, even their worshiping community. And this may seem harsh, but perhaps for a lot of us, it seems kind of familiar. I mean, to many of us, this pandemic has sent the entire world into a state of unclean, right? And we all know what it's like for our jobs and habits and community and worship to be disrupted. And this is what it's like to be a leper. This is what their life was like. You had to stay away from others because you were unclean, and others had to stay away from you or risk becoming unclean themselves. And so all of this from Leviticus is the backdrop to what we read here in Mark, in this story of Jesus and the leper. And all of this makes Mark's story all the more startling I mean, just the first few words of our passage are enough to kind of stop you in your tracks, right? Verse 40 begins, a leper came to him. What? A leper came to him? What is a leper doing coming to him? Lepers are supposed to stay away. They're supposed to keep their distance, Right? That's not only good hygiene, that, that's the law of Moses. Right? That's the book of Leviticus. Go outside the camp, stay away. I mean, this is a bold move to come up to Jesus. And did any of you get to watch the, the video clip that I sent out with the email this past Friday? Uh, it it kind of showed this a sort of dramatization of this scene. Uh, and if you got to watch it, you know, it, the moment that Jesus' disciples saw the leper approaching, they let out this loud gasp, 
and begin to scramble to cover up their skin, cover up their faces, while shouting, stay away, don't move any closer. And I think this is a great depiction of how they probably would have responded. Because they were not only in danger of catching a disease, uh, far worse than that, they were in danger of becoming unclean, of becoming outcasts themselves. So this is, this is all the backdrop to this story. This is how they respond. This is a startling encounter. And yet, how does Jesus respond? Right? Does he draw back and recoil? Does he sternly warn the man who's approaching him to stop? Does he condemn him for not following the law that commanded him to stay away? No. Look at verse 41. It says Jesus is moved with pity. Jesus is moved with pity. Some translations say he is moved with compassion. Now, there are other translations that say that Jesus becomes angry or indignant. And and if that's the right way to translate it, it's immediately clear that his anger is not with the man, but with the disease. Jesus is moved with pity and compassion for the man. And just look at what he does. Jesus cleanses him. He cleanses this man. But how he does it is everything. I mean, Jesus could have, you know, kept his distance and just given the command, be clean. But that's not what he does. This man approaches him, and it says, moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hands and touched him. This is huge. According to the law, by touching the leper, Jesus has become unclean. Right? He has come into contact with this leprous disease. Jesus would have become unclean. But what we see instead is not the law at work, but grace. According to grace, this encounter does not leave Jesus unclean, but rather leaves the leper cleansed. And so Jesus begins to reinterpret the law and show that its true purpose is not condemnation, but restoration. This is the heart of God. This is who God is. When he sees infection, when God sees corruption, he does not recoil and withdraw, but rather God moves toward And he brings cleansing. He brings restoration. This is the heart of God. This is who God is. And and this story does not only challenge some of the understandings and practices of the law, but it also challenges some of our own understandings and practices. 
There's a psychologist named Richard Beck from Abilene Christian University, and, and he has written this book called Unclean. And it's, it's a phenomenal book. It, it's, it's brilliant in so many ways. And in it, he explores the psychology of disgust as a way of understanding all of these theological themes that we're talking about. And, and, and he does so. It's fascinating and, and challenging. He describes that disgust is this universal human emotion that's ultimately concerned with boundaries and expulsion. That's what disgust is all about, right? It's triggered whenever something unclean crosses over a boundary into a realm that's considered clean. And it results in the expulsion of the unclean item. All right, think of finding a hair in your bowl of soup, right? Something unclean has crossed over into the realm of clean. That's disgusting. Or think of a, a fly that gets stuck in your salad dressing. It's buzzing around, just stuck there, right? That's disgusting. Something unclean has crossed over into the realm of what was clean. So the soup has now become unclean. That salad has now become unclean. Now, just imagine for a moment that, that you only discovered this after you've taken a bite out of it, right? You feel that hair in your mouth. You feel the crunch of the fly that you weren't expecting in your salad, right? You guys know what's happening. This is disgusting. This is disgust. And, and he talks about the universal expression of disgust, right? Your upper lip kind of lifts up. Ugh. That, that's this, this expression, and it's universal across all cultures, all people display disgust in the very same way. He writes, says, this constriction, the upper lip, is characteristic of an oral and nasal response to the rejection of something offensive that has been eaten. Right? It's the body's way of literally preparing to spit out something that's been brought into it. It's, it's this visceral reaction. The facial expression that we have, whether we've eaten something disgusting or whether we have just heard about something that we find disturbing. Our bodies have the same response either way. This is the way that our bodies respond to disgust. I mean, I imagine Jesus' disciples had that very same response when they saw the leper coming toward them. And so disgust is about boundaries and expulsion. And there's this visceral reaction to it. But there's also a psychological reaction that we have internally, right? Our bodies respond in a certain way, but also our minds respond in a certain way. And Richard Back describes how disgust functions with a kind of logic of its own. And often it can be fairly illogical when you really think about it. But I want to share a couple of principles of this logic of disgust that he shares that actually have some pretty big spiritual implications for us. One of them is called the principle of negativity dominance. 
All right, negativity dominance. The idea is that in the realm of disgust, the negative is far more dominant than the positive. All right, here's an example that he gives. One drop of urine in a bottle of wine makes it undrinkable. Any of you going to drink that? Right? But it doesn't work the other way, does it? One drop of wine in a bottle of urine, you're not going to start drinking that. Right? Because negativity is dominant. It just takes one little drop of something negative to pollute. Right? That's the way that disgust works for us. A hair in your soup doesn't actually make it inedible, but it does make it disgusting. Or fly in your salad. Right? You send that back. Negativity dominance is one of these principles of the logic of disgust. Another one that he talks about is the principle of permanence, right? That means once something becomes disgusting, it, it never really becomes undisgusting, right? We, we, we can never make that transition back, right? He cites this study in which a group of people were asked some hypothetical questions. Imagine you're offered a glass of juice, but before getting the glass of juice, a cockroach is dropped into it, stirred around, but then taken out. Are you going to drink that? No, probably not, right? But, but then, you know, and, and that's a natural response, right? Something unclean is crossed over into the boundary of what was clean, so we, we have this disgust. But then they keep asking the hypothetical questions, right? They say, okay, so what if this, this glass of juice that, that you've just seen with a cockroach in it, but we took it out and stuff, we're going to take this glass of juice, we're going to run it through a filtration system. We're going to boil it. Then we're going to run it through the filter again. Will you drink it now? And most people still say, no, I am not touching that. I saw with my own eyes a cockroach in that glass. I'm not touching it right? Even though logically, well, it's cleaner than most tap water, right? It's been purified twice and boiled, but psychologically, we can't move past it. It still draws us toward disgust. This is how the logic of disgust works. This is how this principle of permanence functions. Once something becomes disgusting, it remains disgusting. Now, these principles of negativity dominance and permanence rule our logic of disgust, right? This is how we function in the world. But this kind of logic very easily spills over from the realm of physical to the realm of spiritual. And it can become very toxic when we do that. You know, when that happens, we're in trouble. I mean, just think about how this might affect the mission of the church, right? When we are functioning under the logic of negativity dominance, well, then we become judgmental because just one wrong action means you're unclean, right? You're just worthy of judgment, you know, it makes us fearful of even really participating in the world around us because, man, what if we come into contact with someone else? 
we become unclean, right? When we begin to function under this idea of negativity dominance, we become judgmental and afraid. And it keeps us from living the mission that Jesus has called us to. Or then think about when we function under the logic of permanence, we become hopeless because nothing can be restored, nothing can be transformed. Once something becomes disgusting, it's always disgusting. And then we become filled with shame because once we are disgusting, well, nothing could ever redeem us, right? And so we become hopeless and ashamed. We're constantly torn down, constantly moved back into withdrawal. You see, this logic of disgust is embedded in our psyches, just like the law was embedded in the minds of people in Jesus' day. But Jesus comes to disrupt both of these by showing us the heart of God. He disrupts these false interpretations of the law, and he disrupts our own false logic of disgust. Listen closely. God is not disgusted by you. God does not turn up his nose at the world. This is not who God is. He does what we find unthinkable. We see how God responds in the flesh. Look to Jesus. Jesus is not filled with disgust, but compassion. Jesus does not withdraw. He reaches out. And in Christ, we see the logic of disgust in reverse. Because instead of negativity dominance, we see positivity dominance. The perfection of Jesus does not become impure, but rather the leper is cleansed. Instead of permanence, we, we see transformation. Jesus transforms the leper. Jesus restores him, makes him clean. This is the heart of God. Instead of the logic of disgust, we see the way of the kingdom. Where all that is impure is made clean. Where all that is wrong is made right. Where all that is broken is restored. And so I, I want to ask us today, as, as we consider this story and, and look at the heart of God on display, what kind of shame is it that you carry in your own heart? What kind of transformation do you need in your life? What kinds of things has the law or the logic of disgust convinced you are permanent? 
convinced you that they're just a part of who you are, that transformation is impossible, that this shame is rightly what you deserve? What is that? And I want you to know that Jesus does not recoil from you. He reaches toward you. And see, Jesus comes not only to reach out to us, but he also leads us to reach out to the world around us. Jesus does not only transform us, he calls us to join him in the transformation of the world. And so I also want to ask you this question. Who are those that you might be able to reach out to that maybe you haven't even thought of, that maybe you don't even want to? Who are the ones around you that, that you might reach out toward? What kind of transformation might you be able to bring to the realms of, of your life? The neighbors that you have, or coworkers, family members, friends. God reaches out to us and he sends us out into the world. He cleanses us, but he also sends us to be those who bring transformation wherever we go. The places where you are, outside of this room, or away from, from this live stream, right? The, the places where you are outside of this time, you're there for a reason. God has placed you there for a reason, to bring transformation, to, to remove whatever shame or brokenness is there, and declare, this is the heart of God. He does not recoil. He does not hold forth judgment, but he brings forth his love. This is who God is. And so as we go from this place today, may we be washed clean and may we be sent to see the world transformed. May it be so. Amen.